0: Well, good morning. Great to be here with you. It's nice to have the sunshine, isn't it? Well, it's gone in a bit now, but still, hey. Uh, it's great to be here, and I bring you apologies for my wife, who was hoping to be here, but uh, she's got this funny problem with her stomach, which she's, she's having all sorts of medical treatment for at the moment. And just before we were due to come out, she had a bad one. <laughs> As a result, she's had to stay there, but she's, she does send you her, her regards and uh, her wishes that she could be here. Anyhow, let's read the Bible together, shall we? That's uh, Acts chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to read what happened immediately after the Apostle Paul had become a Christian. So it's Acts chapter 9 and verse 19. It says, after taking some food, Saul regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to call him that his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, Speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then, the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. When somebody becomes a Christian, big things happen. (laughs) Not always all at once. Sometimes when you become a Christian, it's a great experience that's so convulsive and uh, immediate that you know exactly what's happened straight away. And for the Apostle Paul, I guess it was a bit like that. Seeing the bright light on the way to Damascus, suddenly his whole world was turned over. For other people, sometimes it's a process. (laughs) And it's often been compared to going across the frontier between countries. I remember in the old communist days, I used to work in Poland quite a bit, back in the 1980s, and I used to drive across the face of Europe to get there. And it was interesting, passing through different borders, how different they could be. When you went from Belgium into Holland, for instance, or Holland into Belgium, depending which way you were going, you hardly noticed. And sometimes you'd go across the frontier without spotting it. I remember once thinking, I'm going to see where (laughs) the frontier comes. I'm going to keep my eyes uh, on the side of the road and just watch what's there. And sure enough, on the border between Belgium and and Holland in those days, there was a little frontier post, nobody inside it, all shut, barred and locked. And uh, there was a a traffic light above the road on sort a big arc of steel set permanently to green. (laughs) So you'd, you'd flash past it without really noticing it was there. When you got to East Germany, on the other hand, whoa, you knew you were going somewhere. Your car would be strip searched. They'd put these mirrors on wheels underneath the car, and a bit like hoovers, uh, but with mirrors, uh, to see that you hadn't got anything strapped to the petrol tank or, or whatever. And uh, they'd ask you all sorts of questions. And you'd be in a queue of cars for maybe five or six hours before you got across the frontier. And when you were driving through East Germany, you had a visa that meant you could only stay on that one road. If you went off it for even a few yards, the police would stop you straight away. And uh, it just felt like a very oppressive atmosphere. You'd come out of West Germany, where nobody cared much what you did, as long as you kept be- be beneath yeah, 200 miles an hour. And suddenly, you know, there you were with every move being watched and monitored. And, uh, uh, and everybody knew exactly what was going on. The police had their eye on you all the time. And that uh, you really knew you'd crossed that border because it was a big deal. Now, for some people who become a Christian, it's like going from Belgium to Holland. <laughs> it just happens over a period of time, and you don't really know when it, the moment came, but you just realize, looking back, that now you believe in somebody you didn't believe in before, and it's become the center of your life, and everything's slowly changing inside you, so imperceptibly that you might not even notice but other people notice and they start saying, you know, there's something different about you. Oh, oh, is it? yeah, yeah, it's good, it's good, we like it, but it's different. And you don't notice it, but it creeps up on you. For other people, it's a cataclysmic change. So, it's great that we have, in this chapter that we're looking at, such a detailed account from Luke of what exactly happened when Paul became a Christian. I say detailed, but there are big things missed out, as you'll see in a moment, because I think in this chapter there are three things. The first thing is in Damascus he was on the way to Damascus you might remember when this bright light shone around him and he heard the voice of Jesus and he looked up into the skies and he saw Jesus whom he was trying to stamp out whose followers he was persecuting and he began to realize that Jesus was not just a dead renegade cult leader he was somebody who was still alive and far far more powerful than he was and so he's led into Damascus blinded he's there for a few days ananias one of the disciples comes lays hands on him he gets his sight back but he's weak and he needs to be strengthened and this is where our passage comes in isn't it he spends some days with the disciples regathering his shattered wits gaining his strength again and slowly trying to fit into his head this incredible information that jesus really is the son of god so that's the first bit the second bit is where luke is not very detailed Because you'll notice how it says uh, that uh, uh, Saul is with the disciples and then he preaches in the the synagogues. And after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. After many days, Saul was in Damascus for three years. And we know that during that three years, he took one holiday trip. (laughs) We know that not from Acts, because Luke misses it out completely, but from Galatians, where Paul is telling the story to one of the churches he planted in present-day Turkey, or several of the churches. And he says there, when he first became a Christian, he was in Damascus, and then he went down into the desert of Arabia. And we reckon the place he went to was Mount Sinai, where Israel, centuries before, had received the law, which has meant everything to Paul in his whole life so far. I think he went down to Sinai uh, for reasons that we'll, we'll have a look at in a moment. But there's a third thing as well, because he then goes back to Damascus, and then Luke takes up the story again. After many days... Paul is sent off to Jerusalem by the rather unusual method of being sent down the wall in a basket. (laughs) And so Paul goes to Jerusalem, the place where he'd he'd started from three years before, setting out as somebody who was a recognized, respectable scholar. Somebody with letters from the high priest to arrest Christians all over the place. Somebody who was, was a dignified personage. And now he was going back to the very city where he'd been making trouble to say to the Christians, <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> you were right. Jesus is the Messiah. What was going to happen to him there? Obviously, they were, they were going to be suspicious of him. How was it going to go? So that's the third thing we've got to look at. So let's look at those three things, one after another. First of all, Paul in Damascus. This is the street called Strait in Damascus as it was in Paul's, no, 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 he didn't have uh, films in his camera, he didn't have even have a, 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 a camera in his uh, mobile phone. This is 1903, but I've put the 1903 picture in because it's a lot more like what uh, Paul would have known in Straight Street than uh, what you see nowadays, which is full of neon shops and stuff like that. But anyway, this is the street where he was led, uh, blinded, Wondering what was going on with his whole mind in absolute turmoil. And this is where he waited for Ananias to come and see him. Feeling absolutely helpless. Not able to see anything around him. Just completely bewildered by everything that was going on. And uh, I think in Damascus you find three things happen. First of all, there's an immediate transformation. Paul is changed immediately. And he heads straight back to the synagogue to get on with the job. (coughs) And tell people what he's just discovered. Second thing is murderous hostility. We read about that. People start saying, let's get rid of him. He's inconvenient. Let's kill him off. But uh, Paul hears about the plot and he's able to get out of the city. And third is getting out of the city. A humbling exit, being let down the wall in a basket. And I think at each stage of this, Paul discovers three things. (laughs) First of all, the immediate transformation. When he changed, suddenly, Went back into the synagogues with his sight renewed and started saying, Jesus is the Christ. Um, What happened then? What did he discover? He was able to go into the synagogue with no problem because any male Jew who was suitably qualified could stand up in the service, take the scriptures, read them, and expound a little bit. And so he was quite welcome to do that. Oh, this is Paul. Yes, uh, this is a guy who's come to persecute the Christians. Okay, let's hear what he's got to say. And what they heard absolutely astounded them. And Paul found pretty quickly, when he started explaining his faith and arguing it, reasons are important. You notice how it says he was proving uh, to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. What he had to give them wasn't just an emotional message. You see, he had some time, while he had no eyesight, to sit there and just think. And he must have thought through, how can I fit Jesus into my thinking? I've been against Christians because everything they believe seems to me to to tear up the Old Testament and distort the message completely that Jews have believed for centuries. How can I read the the Old Testament in a way that makes sense of the fact that God is, 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 is right and we are his people, and yet on the other hand, Jesus is God's son? How can god who is one and every little jewish boy uh grew up repeating again and again hear all israel the lord our god is one god how can god be one god when jesus is up there with him what's what's the situation here and so he's had time to think through this and let his mind revolve through all the scriptures he knows from isaiah from other books of the old testament that talk about the coming messiah micah all sorts of books and gradually see How this is actually talking about Jesus. How Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's hope. So when he goes into the synagogue, he's able to give good reasons for what he believes. And that's the first thing he discovers. It's something you discover too, isn't it, as you go out there and try to share your faith with other people. We need reasons. We need to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us, as as, as Peter puts it later in the New Testament. It's not enough just to say, well, I feel Jesus in my heart. Uh, My life has changed because of Jesus. We need to explain why that's true. Otherwise, people look at you and say, well, I, I feel I, very happy for you. You've obviously had a nice emotional experience. However, you've left this planet. It's not reality any longer. Unless you can show that what you believe makes sense of the facts of your life, you're not ready to witness for, 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 for Jesus Christ. Second thing that you discovered, I think, is that your past is no problem. Because the the response when he started talking about Jesus and how Jesus is there in the Old Testament and all the rest of that was absolute bewilderment. This guy came to persecute Christians, didn't he? And now he's talking as if he's one of them. He is one of them. What's going on here? Has he always been? What's happened to him? Isn't he the one who's got a past of persecution? And uh, it says, uh, uh, interestingly, one little word, yet Saul grew more and more powerful. That word yet interests me, because obviously what you would expect is that the more people say, we know who you are, we know what you used to say, we, your opinions have done gone around 180 degrees, we know, we remember what you were like, you might think that would have put him off. It might have prevented him from presenting his message properly, but yet Paul grew more and more powerful, and he found, he was discovering that his past was no problem. In fact, it made people interested. What's happened to him to change him so much? <laughs> Sometimes, I think, uh, Christians who try to share their faith with other people have a problem with their past. Either because they're ashamed of the way they were and they don't want to say too much about it. Or on the other hand, because, well, I've always been a good kid. <laughs> you know, I went to Sunday school when I was very young. And sometimes people even try to beef up their testimony a little bit. You know, I used to be a, a terrible sinner. I, I, I did all sorts of horrible things. My, my parents were in despair at the kind of things I did. People used to cross the road to avoid me. And, uh, and then one day in Sunday school at the age of three. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you can make your testimony sort of improbably funny like that. But, uh, you know, it, it, you don't have to be. One thing I've discovered from working in schools and universities over the years is that uh, you don't have to be embarrassed about saying, I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up always going to church. I mean, what you tend to think is, oh, they'll think, ah, yeah, but you've been brainwashed from birth. Yeah, we don't need to listen to you because you're just a religious creep. Actually, I found that when you talk about that, and I'm talking about my good, sort of strict brethren childhood in Scotland and how I went to church every Sunday for three meetings, not including Sunday school, which was also in the deal, and uh, how on Sundays I was not able to read any books except Christian books. And I remember having a long argument with my parents about whether Ben-Hur was a Christian book, but I lost that one. <laughs> I lost that one. Um, and, and the more you talk about you know, your, your religious past, the more incredulous people get, you did all that? and yet there was something more you needed? You were as religious as that, and yet there was a gap in your life? What else for Pete's sake? What could you have needed apart from that? And uh, when you, you, you talk about that, it's, it's amazing how interested people become. What is a, so it's not about being religious. What is it about then? Never be ashamed of your past, whatever it is, because God can use it in the way that you communicate your faith. Third thing Paul discovered here, I think, was that new Christians are powerful. <laughs> When somebody's just become a Christian, their faith has an edge to it, a a vibrancy about it, a a, a kind of fascination for other people that's not going to be the same six months down the line. So I strongly believe in people who've just become Christians being encouraged to go and tell everybody about it straight away. New Christians are always the best evangelists. I well remember years ago leading a, a school mission in a place called Highworth just outside Swindon. And uh, I did a weekend for uh, some of the, uh, the, the young people who were going to be part of this mission before it actually started. They were uh, part of the Methodist Church youth group in the town at that time. Over that weekend, one or two of them became Christians. And uh, on the first night of the mission, I remember, we were running a sort of week-long coffee bar. It it? No. Well, that, the, the monitor's gone out, but that you're... Oh, it's back again. Hello, monitor. Okay, um, I remember we were running this week-long coffee bar, and it was sort of silly games and throwing Rice Krispies around and decorating people with shaving foam and stuff like that. <laughs> so very prudently, I went into the back room and started slicing up booklets that I thought we might need later on. And I was just in there for a minute while the games were going on next door, and the girl came through the door. And uh, I said, uh, what do you want? Are you looking for the toilet or something? She said, no, I want to become a Christian. And I said, uh, you can't. <laughs> By which I meant, you've not heard anything yet. We've not said anything. She said, yep, yep, I know all about it. My friend told me, she's a Christian, and she told me exactly what to, what uh, I need to do. So I questioned her, and she got it absolutely straight. She knew what the gospel was. She was just ready to do it. And uh, I said, so who's, who's, who's been telling you all this stuff? And she said, Julie. Julie was 14, and she'd been a Christian less than 24 hours herself. <laughs> That's great. It was absolutely fabulous. So I said, okay, let's pray together. She said, ah. No, I'll do it myself if you don't mind. <laughs> Fine, okay. So this, this wee girl who'd, who'd only been instructed by somebody who'd been a Christian less than 24 hours just prayed out loud in front of me, and she was brilliant. Absolutely amazing. No Christian background, nothing like that. But Julie had done such an amazing job. New Christians are powerful. So that's what Paul found at that point. Then he goes down to Arabia, which we'll get to in a moment, and comes back again. And he encounters this murderous hostility we're talking about. Uh, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. What does he discover at this point? Well, I think, once again, three things. First of all, God was right. You see, he's not surprised that they want to kill him because God has warned him that this is what's going to happen. When Paul is, is thrown to the ground on the way to Damascus and he sees a bright light around him, he says, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord doesn't tell him. <laughs> he says, go into the city and it will be told you what you shall do. So that's another bit of Saul's insecurity, isn't it? Blind, led into a strange city, and not knowing what the rest of his life is going to hold. He's not being given the the, the career plan. And so uh, God then goes to Ananias, or the Lord Jesus goes to Ananias and says, Ananias, you've got to go and talk to Saul. And uh, Ananias says, (laughs) Saul, he's, he's the guy who's come to kill me. No, not a chance, Lord. And the Lord says, go, for I have shown him how much uh, what he's going to do you've got to tell him he's going to stand in front of kings he's going to go to the gentiles not just the jews like you ananias and he's going to suffer for my sake so obviously w- when Saul sees ananias and ananias puts his hands on Saul and prays for him and his, his eyesight comes back Saul that's great what a relief now what has god told you what am i going to do for the rest of my life and I'm, well you're going to stand in front of kings what you're going to go to the gentiles the gentiles and you're going to suffer oh (laughs) so he knows already this is in the plan and god has a way of preparing you for things doesn't he so when all of this uh, uh unrest and hostility starts paul's first thought is god knows what he's doing he's leading me through this i know i'm not on my own second thing is he realizes people are blind because he's been giving them good reasons for accepting jesus as Messiah. So much so that it says he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. They had no answer to him. They tried their best arguments. Well, Jesus can't be the Messiah because the Old Testament says, Cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. What have you got to say to that? Uh, Paul thinks, I've got that one covered. I can answer that one. Oh, well, but uh, Isaiah 53, talks about his seed and uh, he'll prolong his days. And this guy was hung on the cross when he was 33 years old. How about that one? I've got that one covered too. He's got great answers to all of their questions. God has picked the right person here. He's got an incredible mind. But it still doesn't get through. And that's one thing we need to reckon with, isn't it, in evangelism? That the prince of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe so they can't see the truth. And so that means we need good reasons. We need good arguments. We need to be able to communicate our story clearly. And we need the boldness to do it. But all of that will be useless unless the holy spirit is also at work and so the most important uh, important part of evangelism the sneaky bit that leaves them without a chance (laughs) is when we pray and prayer is the foundation of anything because we're asking for a supernatural change in people's ability to understand and it's amazing to me as a preacher down through the years to see people who start out completely opposed and absolutely unwilling to accept anything (coughs) who suddenly open up through the power of the Holy Spirit and begin to see things from a completely different perspective. And when you see it happen again and again and again, you begin to realize this is a spiritual battle. You're not asking people to change their opinions. They're not asking to, 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 to join a movement. What you're asking is for them to open their lives to the Holy Spirit who's knocking on the door and trying to get in. And when the Spirit comes in power, big things happen third thing i think paul discovered here was i'm protected (laughs) because uh, he learned about the plan before it happened now it's possible that just walking down straight street one night he might have got mugged with a a, a piece of wood with a spike a a nail snuck through it or something like that and uh, that would have been the end of paul didn't happen because paul found out by chance what was going to happen to him and he began to realize god can keep me safe through all of these things i'm I bear a charmed life (laughs) until I've finished the purpose that God has called me for. No wonder this experience gave him the bravery to go back to Jerusalem. Then out from Jerusalem, eventually to Antioch, and then out to the ends of the earth because he knew he was in safe hands. And whatever happened to him, God was going to protect him until the job was done. Then there was a third thing, his humbling exit. (laughs) After all of that, uh, he was... uh, He had to leave the city and uh, he, he had made some success. Some people had become Christians because you can see in verse 25 it says, his followers, his disciples literally, took him by night and lowered him in a basket. Who were these people? His disciples. In other words, not just disciples who were there in Damascus anyway, but people whom Paul had led to Christ. And over three years, a group of people had accepted his message and had become so concerned about him they wanted to keep him safe at all costs. They believed in Jesus, thanks to Paul. So there had been some success. But all the same, because the king, Aretas, or Ethnart, to give him his p- proper term, had got all the exits guarded, there was only one way of getting them out of the city, and that was in a basket. It wasn't even a proper basket, we believe. Uh, what they used to do in those days is, was if you had to raise... Uh, woods up to the third floor or something like that, you know, firewood or if you had to get your dirty washing out in the street where somebody could wash it you would have this big cloth, like a sheet a bed sheet, with sort of long ropes on on all the four corners of it and you just lower it up and down like that so Paul's sitting in this smelly old bed sheet with the ropes hanging around him and going down the wall thinking Three years ago, I was riding into this city with a retinue with letters from the chief priests and uh, an honorable position in society. Now, here I am bumping down a wall in the middle of the night jan- and hoping desperately that nobody notices. Mm-hmm. And he felt that was a humiliation. And you find he talks about it later on in Second Corinthians, where he says, you know, y- you're saying, oh, Paul, he's not worthy to be an apostle. There are far greater apostles than him. He's well, you know, I'm not going to boast in my achievements, let me tell you some of the things that have happened to me in my life. And he talks about how he's been shipwrecked and how he's been sent to prison and all kinds of things. And the crowning example, he says, And you know, once I had to escape from King Aratas in a blanket down the wall. <laughs> and that's the kind of apostle I am. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to boast about great feats. That was my experience, running away. <laughs> and he obviously felt it was a bit humiliating. So what did he discover through this whole experience? Well, I think three things once again. First, it's not my work it's his. He had to leave these disciples around. And I'll bet he said, oh not yet Lord, there's so much more I could do for them. But God was moving him on, there was no way of changing that. And he had to realise, as he would realise several times in his life after that, that he wasn't responsible for those people, God was. It was God's work, not his. They were his disciples in one sense, but really they were disciples of the Lord Jesus. Not my work but his. Second, he'd begun to realise that discipleship means suffering. And later on in his life, he starts to realize, actually, the suffering that Christians go through for their faith is connected to the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. And uh, he, later on, you find him writing a letter and saying, from henceforth, let no man trouble me. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He says to a group of Christians who are suffering, what's happening to you is you're filling up the sufferings of Christ. Not that the cross wasn't enough. The cross was, was complete and fantastic. But still, while there are Christians in a, a world that's fallen and that hates them, they will go through the same suffering that Jesus did. And they suffer because of the name of Christ. And suffering is part of the package. Third thing, he realized he wins only through Christ. No letters from the chief priest now. No status. No welcome to the best hotel in Damascus. He's somebody who's only going to succeed, only going to make a mark in what he does in life through the power of Jesus Christ. He has nothing to offer of his own. So that was Paul in Damascus and uh, you'll have noticed with a sinking heart that uh, we've got about three or five minutes left and we've no, we've only done one section of the three. Let's, let's talk about the, the other two and sketch them in anyhow. Paul on his own. This is Sinai, the S- Sinai Peninsula where Paul went down, it probably, pretty much like that in Paul's day, apart from that little hut in the left-hand corner there, which has solar panels on the roof. (laughs) I don't (laughs) think so, I don't. Anyway, uh, but what was Paul, what was he doing? Why did he go down there? Well, we reckon that he was heading for Mount Sinai, as I mentioned, and that was important because that meant going back to where it all started. The place where Moses stood and received the law from God. Paul was aware that the law of the Old Testament still had a place. He says in Romans, the law is holy and just and good. And he realizes that God never goes back on things he said. And God always keeps his promises. But how does all of that fit together? What did Moses receive from God? And now what's Paul going to receive from God? Maybe if he retraces his steps right back to where it all started from with his nation, then he'll find out. So that was one reason. Second reason, I think, was he was retracing the steps of Elijah. Do you remember Elijah? Mm. He's the prophet who did that fantastic uh, stunt on top of Mount Carmel where uh, he had a waterlogged sacrifice burst into flame simply through the power of God. And uh, for the first time in 40 years, the Israelites started saying, oh, the Lord is God after all. You'd have thought Elijah would be very happy. But in fact, he lost his nerve at that point. Queen Jezebel sent him a death threat and he ran ran from Mount Carmel, which is in the very north of Jerusalem, north of uh, Israel, right down into the Sinai Desert. And he went back to where Paul took his holiday. Hmm. Why? Well, a commentary that's uh, come out recently uh, about the life of Paul, or a biography, says this. Paul, like Elijah, made a pilgrimage to Mount Sinai in order to go back to the place where the covenant was ratified. He wanted to go and present himself before the one God to explain that he had been exceedingly zealous because that's what Elijah did he had this little speech that he made to God I have been exceedingly zealous for your name and they have burnt your altars and uh, killed off your prophets and I even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away from me and he was so proud of that little speech you'll find in (coughs) first kings he gives it twice and God is not impressed either time because God says to him listen you're only seeing a small part of the picture go back Appoint such and such king over Syria. Such and such king over Israel. Appoint such and such as a prophet to replace you. And by the way, I've got 7,000 men hidden in a cave that have not given up worshipping me yet. And Elijah starts to realize, oh, I'm involved in something much bigger than I ever realized. And so uh, uh, he went to explain that he had been exceedingly zealous, but that his vision, his entire worldview had been turned on his head, and he received his instructions go back and announce the new king. And that was what happened to Saul as well. I've been exceedingly zealous. I've persecuted Christians and you just turned my world upside down. What do I do next? Go back Saul, announce the new king. That comes from a great biography of Paul written by Tom Wright. Tom was actually one of my friends at university and Yeah, we're all crumbling away, aren't we, really, when you look at him? Still, never mind. Uh, He he, uh, is now an emeritus professor of St. Andrew's University, former bishop of Durham, one of the leading figures in the Church of England, and possibly the leading New Testament scholar in the world. But then he doesn't get to come and preach at Great Park, so we're pretty much equal. (laughs) Anyway, um, this is another thing he says. Saul was starting to come to terms with the possibility that if the divine purposes had been completed in Jesus... It might mean that a whole new phase of the divine plan, hitherto barely suspected, had been launched. And Saul, like Elijah, was told to go back and get on with the job. <laughs> but there was a third thing as well. Paul wanted to hear from Jesus himself. And that was one reason he went to Sinai and had this little break where he thought through everything from absolute basics. Because he didn't want a gospel that was sold to him by Ananias or the apostles or anybody else. He wanted to be absolutely clear that the revelation he'd received was what Jesus was saying. Jesus was Lord now. He realized that. And so he wanted to hear from him. And that pretty much is what happened. Because again, in Galatians, you find that Paul talks about the message that he preaches. And uh, he, 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 this is where he talks about the Arabia bit. These are the verses in the message version. Immediately after my calling, without consulting anyone around me, and without going up to Jerusalem to confer with those who were apostles long before I, I was, I got away to Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. But it was three years before I went up to Jerusalem to compare stories with Peter. He said, when I went to Jerusalem, I was there only 15 days. But what days they were. Except for our master's brother James, I saw no other apostles. I'm telling you the absolute truth in this. And one of the reasons that Paul had such a firm faith and was able to take it to so many difficult places was because he'd worked it through from the basics. He knew it came from Jesus. It wasn't something that was a package that had been sold him by anybody else. He knew he had the truth because he knew he had a relationship with Jesus himself. Now, it's just possible that you, sitting here this morning, have a faith which has been sold to you. (laughs) Or it's somebody else's faith. You inherited it from your parents' People around you have, have made you feel that coming here is a good thing. You need to meet Jesus for yourself because that's got to be the absolute foundation of a faith that's secure and certain. You can't live on somebody else's spirituality. You need to know Jesus. And if that makes no sense to you, talk to me afterwards or, or somebody else who's here. Third thing, final thing. D- don't lose heart on the last stretch here. Paul in Jerusalem he was sent off eventually after he got <coughs> down uh, the wall in the basket to Jerusalem. And uh, at first, he <coughs> found it really difficult. Because going back to the city where he was remembered for the stoning of Stephen, and he was remembered for all the mess he'd made of Christians' lives before he went off to Damascus, you can imagine that people were thinking, is this some kind of deep laid plot? We haven't heard about him for a few years, and now he's back in the city pretending to be a Christian. Has he just gone undercover? Is he intending to betray us all to the chief priests? We are not touching him. And if we're not for one man, (laughs) the whole thing might have finished there. But Barnabas, who was somebody who was always an encourager, you can read the story of Barnabas through the book of Acts, and you find it again and again, somebody who just didn't give up on people in the way that even Paul did sometimes. Barnabas took a massive gamble and said, okay, I believe your story. I know what's gone on with you. I'm going to take you to the apostles and as we've read in Galatians it was only two of them but two of the most important ones and I'm going to introduce you and I'm going to say this is somebody you can trust sometimes you have to take a risk on people don't you (laughs) but Barnabas always thought the best of people he wasn't always looking for things he could criticize in them he was looking for the life of, of of God appearing in them And when he saw it, he was full of joy. No wonder he was the one that was sent to Antioch when the news got back to Jerusalem that, you know, people who are not Jews are actually becoming Christians in Antioch. Go up there and sort them out. And so Barnabas goes up the road wondering what's happening. And when he gets to Syria, he finds all of these people who are not Jewish at all. They're not circumcised. They don't eat the right food. But they are full of Jesus. And his heart is just thrilled, absolutely thrilled. And so he goes back to Jerusalem with his report and he's just just full of excitement at what's happening to them. Barnabas always looked for the positive. It's a great great lesson to learn, isn't it? Don't look for what you can criticize in other people, what you can use to tear them down. Look for where God is at work in their lives. Second, there's what the apostles did. You see, if the apostles had continued to be suspicious, if they'd not been very sure about it, that would have been it. And you can imagine how Peter and James had been with Jesus, let's face it, for three years as disciples, who were leaders of this whole movement, which is spreading all over the place, but, you know, still needed a careful eye kept on it, who were still in Jerusalem uh, years after most of the church had fled because they were being persecuted so badly, they might have reacted badly to Paul and thought, well, we'll put you on a five-year probation. (laughs) Maybe in 10 years, we'll talk to you again and just see how you're doing. But right now, we don't want to touch you with a barge pole. How can you come in and claim to have seen Jesus? If you've seen Jesus, the risen Jesus, that makes you an apostle. You think you're on the same level as us? We paid our dues, boy. You know, we were three years with Jesus, traveling around, sometimes out in the countryside at night. You know, when he was crucified, ooh, that was a dodgy moment. All kinds of things going on in our lives. And you you want to be an apostle too? No chance. Go away. Fill in the form and then we'll tear it up. But they didn't do that. They accepted him too on Barnabas say so. And so Paul was accepted by them and accepted as a result by the church in Jerusalem. Not that he lasted long, remember, 15 days? And then he had to be sent on. But before he was sent on, there's another interesting thing, because Jesus did something too. Paul talks about this somewhere else. Uh, He talks about this in uh, Acts chapter 22 when he's telling the story again. He says, after I was back in Jerusalem and praying one day in the temple, lost in the presence of God, I saw him saw God's righteous innocent that's Jesus and I heard him say to me hurry up get out of here as quickly as you can none of the Jews here in Jerusalem are going to accept what you say about me (laughs) and so he was warned before the disciples even came to and said Paul things are getting hot we're gonna have to get you out of the city sorry it's been nice meeting you over the last couple of weeks but this is goodbye he knew because Jesus had prepared him for it and so pretty obviously He had a Lord now who was preparing every step of the way in front of him. And so Paul goes on to Tarsus, stays there for 10 years, and then things really start to happen in his life. But you'll get to those bits if this series continues. Let me just finish with one more word, because the verse at the end, I think, is important, isn't it, in our thinking about all of this. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. And it gives you the formula for a church to be strengthened and to grow living in the fear of the lord and encouraged by the holy spirit it increased in numbers living in the fear of the lord that's our bit (laughs) the fear of the lord doesn't mean being scared of god it means living reverently under his complete and total authority and when the church is constantly asking god paul's first question lord what is it you want me to do and being prepared to take whatever answer he gives and get on with it that's when it grows but there's his bit as well. Encouraged by the Holy Spirit. That word encouraged doesn't just mean an arm around your shoulder and a pat on the back. It's the Greek word paraklesis. And that means strengthened for the battle. Pushed back into action. There's a great bit on the Bay of Tapestry, you know, that tells the story of the, the Battle of Hastings. Where Bishop Odo sees two soldiers running away from the front line thinking, oh, I do not fancy this, I do not want to fight the English. And uh, Odo, uh, with his spear, is pushing them back into battle. And above it, it says, Odo encourages his soldiers. (laughs) And that's the kind of encouragement you get from the Holy Spirit. Patching you up and pushing you back in the front line. Because that's where you're supposed to be. So when you're allowing the Holy Spirit to encourage and strengthen you, and when you're living in the fear of the Lord, you can see things happen. That's the lesson of Acts. Let's just pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you very much for all that there is in this passage. There's so much there that we could get more and more out of, but uh, just this simple recitation of the facts as they happened, even if it leaves out big bits, uh, shows us so much about how you want us to live our Christian lives. Help us be an act to the Apostles' church. Help us share the mentality of the Apostle Paul and help us see our church grow encouraged by the Holy Spirit as we live in the fear of the Lord. For your name's sake. Amen.